So we're going to get into it pretty quickly here in this morning. So um, go ahead and turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Uh, this is our second, our second week in our series in Titus. And um, if you have an app or a Bible, um, turn with me to Titus. And I always want to say to you, if you're, uh, if you're newer, um, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents, okay? I, I know even I sometimes, someone will name a book and I'm like, I forget where that is. Okay, it's okay. Take a deep breath. Look at the table of contents. Find Titus. And um, also, if you don't have a Bible with you here today, go ahead and hold your hand up high, and somebody will get you a Bible. So hold it up high and keep it up high. Um, también si quieres la Biblia en español, uh, solamente levanta su mano y diga español. Um, we want to make sure everyone can have a Bible they can read and understand in their own language. And if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Okay, we want to make sure that you have a Bible, that you can read it, underline stuff, put question marks, make notes. Um, and that's really important to us. Again, we always have it here on the screen, but uh, especially, I want to make sure that you know that I'm not just kind of going off the fly here, okay? That what we're looking at is God's Word. We stand when we read God's Word, and we want you to be able to look at God's Word and be like, did God really say that? And, and underline stuff, and again, um, uh, learn from his word. And, and um, if you saw, maybe you saw in the, in, the, in the email that we send out each week what we're going through this morning, and sometimes we hit on topics in your life, circling that. Like, I'm going to be there for this. I want to hear this. And I'm just going to recognize like this, this morning, kind of at first glance, we're talking about church government and eldership. Um, kind of a big word that somebody asked me about. I didn't even know what the word that was. Polity. Sometimes people talk about this. So maybe you see if you're like, church government, that's probably the one that's going to help me forgive my father. Um, that's probably going to be the one that's going to just, you know, really sink into my heart and change everything for me. Uh, talking about church government. But um, let me kind of push back on that because I think it is. It is um, really important that we get into this. Because remember, what we're talking about in this book we love hunkering down in the book of the Bible. We're spending, spending time in Titus. Remember we saw last week, the main theme is that we connect what we believe and what we say we believe with how we live. And that that's directly connected with, with God's plan of establishing a people who live rightly. Or, or the word that shows up here or is translated is, 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 um, is sound. Sound doctrine, sound belief, sound living. And, and then the, the word more rightly understood is, you know, healthy. That we would be the healthy people of God. Not health like, you know, CrossFit or giving up gluten or whatever it might be. But health in terms of like the, the Old Testament idea of shalom. Of living as we ought to live. Living as God created you to live. In your relationship with yourself, with God, with your family, with your work, with everything that you do. Thriving. Thriving is God's people. And so today we're getting into um, that, that, that we would be the healthy church of God, thriving, living under healthy leadership. And um, just to be totally candid to you guys, this morning has been weird for me. Um, I don't know how many of you had a similar experience. My guess is probably very few. That I wake up early on Sunday morning, like really early, like crazy early. I get up at about four and I go for a run just to kind of shake off the cobwebs and like I said coaching baseball and soccer and 
whatever's going on. I just kind of want to get you a good place. And I'm running, and at like 4.30 this morning, I'm jogging along Country Club between Grant and Spit, Spit Keyway, right? So right in the middle of town. And I kind of feel this weird presence, and I look up, there's a tall wall of like six, yes, every wall is tall for me. <laughs> this one's exceptionally tall. It's like six or seven feet high. And I look up, and there is literally a man standing on the wall. Like a skinhead looking guy just standing on the wall. And I'm like, oh, what's up, dude? And Tommy is going, what's up? And, um, and he just kind of keeps looking at me. And I, I make light of it a little bit, but it was just weird and eerie. And I just started praying like, out loud. And, um, you know, I may or may not have tried like a Jedi, you know, spirit Jedi trick, like knock him off the wall. But I just kept running and, you know, got home and prayed all the more. So, um, you know, I, we don't want to over spiritualize stuff, and sometimes we're afraid of doing that. But I, I believe that, that, that we have an enemy. Uh, the Bible teaches that we have an enemy that from the very beginning, um, the enemy of God doesn't want to see God's people, his image bearers, thriving. Uh, together as his people. He doesn't want to see the church be the healthy church of God. And so um, we have a bully, right, who wants to wants to throw jabs, who wants to beat us up and bloody our nose and take our lunch money. And when the bully shows up on a seven-foot wall or whatever was going on there, whatever goes on in our lives, what we do, we don't focus on the bully, right? We don't overly get into, you know, the, the, the spiritual dynamic. But what we do is we focus on the hero. Right? We run to the hero. We run to Jesus and say, hey, the bully's coming in. You know, clean up my wounds. I, I need your help. I need to be reminded that, they, 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 that you're in charge, that you're strong, and that you are taking care of your people, that you're establishing your people. So with that, let's um, pray together and pray that we'll be in a place where we can hear from God about what, what he wants to do to, to establish his people, to live as we ought to live under his authority. Lord, we, we need you um, this morning. Um, uh, I don't know what other people here have been going through this morning. Um, perhaps not, you know, weird guys standing on walls. But, Lord, whether it's family things, um, whatever else it might be going on. Um, I believe that we trust that you have us here this morning. That you have brought us here. You've drawn us here. As we even just sung um, the, the transformation that takes place in the human heart of being turned from stone and, and from having deaf ears and being blinded to you that only you can soften hearts and open eyes and, 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 and open ears to, to hear and be transformed by the renewing of the good news of Jesus. And so I pray that you will prepare us and lead us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive right into it together. Titus chapter 1, verse Five. We're just in four verses, four packed verses this morning together. And this is the author, Paul, is writing to Titus. And he says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So if you remember in the, in the first couple of verses there, Paul, the author, is, is, is writing to his kind of understudy, or who he even calls his son, or his true son. He's like, you're like a son to me. He's been mentoring Titus. And he says, um, this is why I left you here. Okay, so just to kind of orient ourselves in the big story about where are we right now in 2016, as we read this, where, where are we? 
Well, in the beginning, okay, the very beginning, God created all things in, in the heavens and the earth, and he, he, had, he exercised authority. He named the stars and the, and the sea and, and all things, and he said where, where the oceans would stop and the land would begin. And then he said, it's, it's let, let us create man in our image, and he created mankind, you and me and all people, to reflect him in his image. God said, I, I don't want to just, like, he said, I want you to, to reflect me, okay, like, like an image, like a mirror would do. He said, I want all that you do, who you are, your identity and your purpose to reflect me. And that's why God created us. But then very quickly again, his enemy, the holy, creeps in, whispers lies. And we all individually and corporately turned away from God and said, I don't want my identity and my purpose um, to, to come from you. I don't want to be the healthy people of God. I want to be the healthy person of whoever I say I want to be, whatever I want to do. And so we've turned away from him and there's brokenness. And then God promised that he would restore what had been broken. He said, one day I'm going to crush the bully. One day I'm going to put an end to sin, to not God. And then he sent his son Jesus, the hero and the author of the story, to restore what had been broken. And that's what we celebrated on Easter. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. That Jesus came to do what you and I were created to do. To live rightly in his identity and his purpose. His relationship with God. And then he, he laid his life down on the cross. The ultimate death blow. The knockout punch. He crushed death once and for all. And then he rose victoriously from the dead. And, and he, conquered, he conquered sin. And he, he ushered in life as it ought to be. And so now we, through faith in him, can live life as it ought to be. Right? The whole theme of this. And then Jesus ascended. And he told his people, like a ragtag of people, he said, All my authority that I've been given, all the authority that rose from the dead, I, I, I am now using to commission you, and I am with you, with that authority. So, so in all your fears and your stumbling along, and, and, and whatever it might be, I, I'm with you, and I'm, I'm empowering you, and I'm, I'm sending you. And then he commissioned Paul, and we talked about that. And now Paul's at the end of his life. And he's been establishing the church. He's been proclaiming this good news that I just explained. And then he's about to die. He's about, he's in prison. And he writes a letter to one of the people that he's been pouring his life into. And he says, this is why I left you here. I left you in Crete, this island just off of Greece, so that you can put what remained into order. And that's just the chaos that has been created. The good chaos of Jesus coming and sending a bunch of people and Paul getting knocked off his horse. That's what happened. He was an enemy of God. He was running away from God. He didn't want anything to do with God. Okay, he didn't grow up in a Christian home. He didn't sing all the songs. He didn't know all the things. He was anti-Christ. And then Jesus shows up to him and says, Hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord. And I've got work for you. And then Paul's out telling people, what in chaos is going on? And so now he wants to establish his church. Not just through kind of chaotic evangelism, but through order, through structure, through church government. And some of us might sit here and this again, it's, this sounds weird to us, or maybe we're, it's kind of even offensive to us a little bit, this idea of order and structure coming to the church. Right, I don't know, some of you may have even said or heard it said a lot of times, like, I don't have a problem with God, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. 
But, um, you know, church, like organized religion, I have a problem with that. So let me say a lot of that is well-deserved, you know. The church has done some crazy things over the last couple thousand years. There's been a lot of hurt and pain. Even today, sometimes we don't represent God as he has called us to represent him. But what I think another reason why we do this is we kind of embrace, like, Christian anarchy in our world today. Or, or maybe differently put, we, we in, in many in this room, I'm convinced that we come toward things like this, and we, and we, um, we, we have an arrogant spirituality. See the kid here laughing. Silly. An arrogant spirituality where we have this idea that probably a lot of people in Crete had. It's like, you know, I heard the gospel. Me and God are cool. Me and Jesus are cool. I'm just not cool with his people. So I've got to figure it out. So I can consume. I can go from, you know, church to church. I can just do what I want to do. I can figure it out on my own. God told me this or that, right? We over-spiritualize all kinds of things. And I've determined the path for my life. I haven't pursued wise counsel. I haven't looked for, you know, wisdom. I haven't gone to God's word. And I haven't pursued the, the, the wisdom of others. And so that's the world that we're living in, just like the world that uh, Titus was in when he's supposed to be establishing God's people and giving some order and some structure to it. And some of you even here, you might be thinking, hey, it's worked for me. You know, it's worked for me. I go to this church in the evening because I like to worship there. I like the music there. I go to this church because, I don't know, I like to make fun of the short pastor and speech of heaven in. And I go to this church, you know, hypothetically, it's worked. And then I go to this church because, you know, whatever it might be, and we shop around and we consume. Well, the church, the, the word church in Greek is ekklesia, and it means people. Right? Can you consume people? Right? Like, like Hannibal did, but we're not into that. Okay, you know, you can't consume the way we try to consume church. All right? The church is the people, the living, healthy people of God living under the rule and authority of Jesus according to the, uh, the government or the leadership that he's established. So just because it's been working for you for a while doesn't mean it's a good idea. Okay? Let, let, let's, let this sit in for a minute. I've talked to a couple people here in this church and we've, and we've walked through a lot of marriage counseling and divorce and, and sin struggles and all these things. And being involved in a redemption community is not like a sure fit for like, you're not going to struggle if you're involved in community. But almost to a T, almost to a person, people that are getting divorces, people that are, that are just, that are in a place and they're like, how did we get here? Almost to a person, you trace back to and there's, a, there's this kind of posture. There's a distancing from community. There's, there's a consumeristic approach to life as a Christian. So yeah, it can be working for a while. But, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And it doesn't mean you're playing with fire. Okay, there's something that came to mind for me is for a while as kids, it was a good idea for us to play firecracker tag. Where we would literally throw firecrackers at each other. And play tap. Like if you if a firecracker exploded on you, like you're it now. <laughs> and that was a good idea to us, right? And we just ran around throwing firecrackers at each other. Yes, I did live in Arkansas. Insert joke now. 
Mariah, that's what we did, you know, with the slack guy yokels running around our stuff throwing firecrackers at each other. And it was a good idea until somebody got severely burned on their stomach and we had to come up with an idea for how we were gonna tear, tell our parents that, you know, we were thought it was a good idea to throw little mini bombs at each other. And similarly, a lot of us are in places right now where we're living in isolation where we don't want to hear about organization and church and, and structures and eldership and leadership because, you know, it's working until we get burned. And so we need to hear this. And this is why, this is the purpose, as Paul says at the very beginning here. He tells Titus, this is why I sent you here to give some order and some structure to the people of God, to the church. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And this is, he says in every town because this is, this is in every church. There was like a house church, one church in every town. So the idea that we get from this is that in every church that you're at, establish this kind of leadership, establish elders. So what does that word elder mean, right? Like you might look at, be looking around right now and you're like, I don't see a lot of elders here. You might be a first time visitor and you're like, I guess I'm the elder. Yes, you are. Congratulations. You're here. You now have a job and responsibility. You're the elder. If you have gray hair. That's not what it means. Um, it, it was sometimes used. The Greek word, the real word was presbyteros. It was elder. And it was sometimes used as like old or older or elderly. But in this context, it's clearly used in the New Testament to not just mean the old people. In a group. It means the people that are wise, that give leadership, that give oversight, that give, give structure, that are spiritually mature. Those are the elders. And there were elders in the town, and there were supposed to be elders in the church, established to give leadership. So again, this is, this is the mature, the people who would give leadership. And, and, and before we forget, guys, this stuff is not, like, I've used some big words here, right? Like a plurality of elders is something we're going to talk about. Polity, you know, church government, eldership, all these things, presbyteros. Like what is that? It's, this is really practical about this stuff. Okay, this is a loving God, as we look at in the first few verses, the God who does not lie, the trustworthy God who wants his people to thrive and who establishes very practically, very lovingly, a structure of leadership. That will help his people live healthily under his will and reign ultimately. And so as we get into it, as we go more into this, don't distance, don't think, oh, this is church talk. This is, no, this is practical everyday life stuff. And so he says, establish elders. Let me ask you um, a point in verse 5 here. And a point what? What's that word? Say it back to me. A point. Elders. Is that plural or singular? It's plural. That's right, right? We know this. In Tempe, they didn't get that right, by the way. ASU grads, they were like, I don't know what that even means. <laughs> no, we got some Tempe folks here today, and we love you, and we're glad you're here. Um, and plural means many, by the way. And so, um, <laughs> or more than one. So, elders. There's an idea here, because this theme is going to be worked out as we continue on. And again, 
in their day, just like in our day, there was a tendency for some, like, you know, wise guy to stand up and be like, I'm going to rule this thing. I'm going to start a cult where everybody looks to me, or a practical, functional cult, maybe like we have a lot in our day today. And we're going to have a church where there's the pastor, and the pastor is elevated above everybody else, which I probably should do every once in a while more just to remember I'm not just a short little guy. And, um, but no, there's this, there's this posture and this approach to church life that's like, you know, the elder, the pastor, and, and you know, let's, let's just elevate and distance ourselves. And then dangerous things happen. And again, God very practically, very functionally says, no, I want you to establish elders. That's that plurality, a group of qualified men. We'll get into that. A group of qualified and called men who are called and equipped and commissioned to lay down themselves for the good of the people of God in the local context that he has called them to serve and to point toward Jesus and to protect sound doctrine, sound living, to help the people of God thrive under ultimately God's rule and authority. And that doesn't happen in isolation. That doesn't happen when one person is like set above everybody else. And so we're going to, we fight for that here at our church. Like we fight that um, this isn't a one pony, you know, show. This isn't, um, we're one trick ponies, right? We always get to come back to the gospel. If you're here today, tomorrow, and the next time, and every Sunday there on, you're going to ask, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And it's always going to come to, well, we're going to bring you before the good news of Jesus. And then there's a million, there's an endless number of implications that apply to your life, but it's always going to be the good news of Jesus and how that applies. But 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 we are one-trick ponies. Like there is a, a group of leaders that we are establishing here. So let me just say to you very practically, right? You might be wondering, like, what is our structure here? How does it work? Is Dave like a one-man show? Is am I doing this whole thing? Well, right now, as it sits today, I am currently the only local elder at Redemption Houston. As we said at the beginning, Redemption Church is one church in multiple congregations throughout Arizona. And so we do have an eldership and oversight um, for our church at large. And I get to be a part of that. I'm one of the elders. And um, nobody gets an extra vote. Nobody gets two votes. We are all called together. There's a plurality. There's a, a mutual submission to one another and the leadership over the church. And so when we planted as a church, we had like, I think, uh, 19 people in my house, in my backyard. So from that day, what we did is we established an oversight team or a management team or an eldership, kind of a temporary eldership of um, a diverse group of men who lead us from afar, and I can give you their names, and um, there, there are five men who, who I meet with and am like, accountable to, and you can have their contact information, and, and from the very beginning, we said, if anything goes crazy and Dave starts just going nuts up here, you can contact those people, and more likely what happens is I lean on them very practically for help and wisdom, and, and, um, and, and so all that said, we're in the process, and we are praying for, longing for the day that's coming quickly, um, where we will have local elders, and we're excited for that. We will, we will present the elders before you, and, and, and we will walk through the things that we're now walking through together here of who elders are supposed to be. Okay? Is that making sense to you? Give me an amen, so I know we're wrong. Amen means yes, and I agree, and that, uh, that all makes sense to me. And may be true. So now let's continue walking through, like, what, what are elders? In verse 6, or who are elders? 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So this is who elders are called to be. And, um, on your in your Bible, there might be a little heading there that says something. What, this is always dangerous to do this, but um, what does that say in most of your Bibles? Just shout it out, somebody. Qualifications. Yeah, that's what it says here too. Qualifications for elders. And I think what we're reading here for the most part, as I've studied and read and what makes sense to me, is that these should more be qualities of elders. Things that need to be true. Things that must be true. Okay, this isn't a, this isn't like, because sometimes it gets treated as this like kind of distant, overly philosophical, only, uh, overly kind of intellectual checklist of things. It's like, well, does this person meet that? Yeah, I guess they do. But this is more meant to be like character qualities. Of people that are called to be these things. It says, it says, um, above reproach. And that doesn't mean everybody likes you. That doesn't mean you have a certain number of, you know, Facebook friends or your Instagram pictures get this many likes or whatever it is. It means that it makes sense that you would be in a place where you are giving leadership to God's people in order for them to thrive as his people in light of his character, in light of who he is. It means that you are in such a place that the things of God and the characteristics of Jesus that he now commissions his people to live under through relationship with him and submission to the Spirit, that these things are true of you. It means very practically like this, that if you, if you hear, if you ever say, yeah, Dave is my lead pastor, or, or Dave is one of the elders, and one day when we have elders here, you say, yeah, these are the elders, that there aren't people that are like, wow, him, really? Like, crazy, I did not... Wouldn't have thought that. Because my, if you saw that person on Saturday night, I, mean, I know that person in the way they do business doesn't, um, doesn't really line up with these things that we're looking at here today. I'll just list some of them. We'll walk through some of these. Arrogance, quick temperaments, drunkenness, violence, greedy for gain. Those are things you're not supposed to be. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. If those qualities aren't true and evident, you're not called to be an elder. Again, this isn't a checklist. These are things that you long for in your heart and that are lived out in your life. And then when they're not present, you repent of, you ask for forgiveness of, you pursue help with, you call other people around you, you send texts, say, I need help in this. Man, pray for me. So if we walk through these things again, this is this is what above reproach means. It means it means similar in that word holy, set apart, reflecting Jesus and his characteristics. Above reproach. And husband of one wife. And we're we're kind of starting out here. We're kind of getting into our stride, guys, as we're getting into this. And I'm going to slow us down even more. And then we're going to speed up as we go, just so you know kind of where we're headed this morning. Because a couple of these things I think we need to kind of camp out on. It says. Above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Like there, there are like there are month-long sermon series in these couple words that we just read. Okay, and I have a couple minutes for us to walk through them. So first, the very practical, the surface meaning. Right? You're wondering, okay, husband of one wife. What does that mean? Right? We always want to ask that. Well, what does that mean? What does that technically mean? Sometimes we want to ask that because we want to get out of it. Let me just say, the, the most plain meaning of the text here is this. 
You can only have one wife. Okay? So what this means is if, if you're being considered for eldership here and, and we're like, hey, we want you to go out to dinner, you know, bring your wife along, and, and you say, well, which one? Or should they both come? Um, you know, or you want it separate. Like you want to meet one wife first and then the other one, and then we'll all get together, and, and, and then it's like, okay, end of interview. Like you're done. We're actually going to call the cops right now. You know, and so one wife, and that was very practically necessary in this time because people literally had, it was a polygamous society. People literally could have many wives. And we could get it. Some of you are like, ding, 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 I know in the Bible, like Abraham and David and Solomon, like let's not even get into him. He had a ton of wives. And let's just say, like, quick one-off, that never reflected God and his purposes and his plans, okay? God is not for that. God said, let us make one, one man in our image. And he created man, and then he, he created woman. He said it's not good that man is alone. And so he created woman, and, and okay, that's what we talk about at weddings. And if you're confused by any of this, we can talk more. But all from the very beginning, God wanted to reflect himself through the context of holy union, one man and one woman brought together. Okay, that's God's design, that's God's plan. And so, what does this mean though, the husband of one wife? And again, some of you might have questions in your mind. Well, man, I know somebody who was widowed and was remarried. Or I know someone else who was divorced and they were not believers, they weren't Christians and they got a divorce and then at one point they got remarried. What about that person? And now they're loving and following Jesus and, and now they're an elder in Redemption Church or they're an elder in a different church. Or they're, you know, what, how do we make sense of all that? And those are really valid, important arguments. It's not the most pressing thing, though, that Paul is talking about here. All right, let, let me just say very plainly, God hates divorce. Jesus literally said that. When asked, you know, what do you think about divorce? Well, God hates divorce. Okay, divorce is not a good thing. We've talked about that. We've preached about that. You can look back at our sermon series in Mark, and there's a whole sermon on this stuff. And um, God, God doesn't love it. He's not in, in favor of it by any means. But Jesus is in his broad redemption. He said, I, I've come to make new what has been broken. And so in that context, if someone's been widowed, widowed or someone's been divorced, and that was while they were not believers, um, all these things require conversation and getting into and, and pursuing the practical reality of where we are right now. And so um, I'll just say I don't think this is um, disqualifying Somebody from eldership, if they, you know, in those in those cases that I just said, but that's not the main point, right? The main point that we need to hit on right now is who's called to lead the people of God, as He's called them to live. It's people who are one, women, men. I had to pause there and make sure I got that order right. One woman, man, is what this means. Means that you are a man of one woman, that you have eyes for one woman. And so, does that mean also another crazy implication we get there? So, what about a single guy? Like, I have a friend who's a pastor in Denver who's a single guy. He's like in his mid 40s, and um, he's never been married. And he's the lead pastor, he's an elder, and he's a godly guy. Does this mean you have to be married? I would say absolutely not. That's what that means. But if he's still a one woman man, okay? I don't know that he'll ever get married, and, and I don't know that he plans to get married one day, but he still lives his life as though he's a one-woman man. 
It means that your relationship with other women is as though you are honoring your wife-to-be even if you don't know her name or know if she'll ever come. It means that you live your life now as a single person or, or, or if you are married, it means that you, you present yourself and you live your life as a one-woman man. Okay, Jesus was never married, but he was a one-woman man, if you will. He gave his life for his bride, the church. Okay, he wasn't, he wasn't selling himself out. He wasn't the flirty guy. He wasn't the porn guy. He didn't, you know, he didn't kind of justify stuff. And like we do all these acrobatics with, with these things. No, it means that you present yourself in every way in your relationship with the opposite sex, with integrity. It means you treat other people. It means you treat women as though they will be married to someone else one day. It means you treat your girlfriend as though she will be married to someone else one day. Even if you're sure that's going to be you. First of all, if, you, if you're like, I know she's the one, then let's make it happen, right? Get married. Like, we can do this, okay? If you're confident, like, we're going to get married, then we're going to do that, okay? But some of you are like, no, I know in five years, like, after I get my MBA, we get all our debt paid off and all this stuff, like, we'll be married. So we're just going to pretend like it now, okay? We're going we're gonna to act like we're married, but we're not really. Like, no, okay? Like, that's not how this works. Okay, you treat your one-woman man. I'm way off script here, by the way, because this is, but uh, these things, we need to hear these things. All right? Amen? We need to hear this? Like, we, yes. Okay, turn to your name and say, you need to hear this. And if you don't, then, yes. So, um, now let me get into the other potentially, and I'm not stalling here, or perhaps I am, but it does say the husband of one wife. So does that mean that elders can only be men? And this is like, this is, you all have a good class right now. Okay, that was a terrible transition, by the way. <laughs> but does this mean that in our church, our conviction is that only men can be elders? Yes, it does. And, and, and I, and I want to enter into this as lovingly and as, and as cautiously and yet as confidently as possible. Again, this requires, I mean, blogs, books, sermons, hours of interaction and conversation. And if you're experiencing or feeling a tension, it's not just because of my, like, knee-jerk transition there, but it's because of, you know, pain and hurt in your life or confusion or question over this subject, um, I, I want to invite the conversation. Okay, we always have that posture here. Let's talk about these things. But all that said... Um, we strongly believe that according to the scripture, according to God's word, according to God's design for how his people are to most rightly flourish as his people under his leadership ultimately. And then from there under the leadership that he's established is that there would be a group of qualified and called men who would lovingly lead his people and who would lay their lives down for them. And my, my thought is most likely we have a lot of tension with that. Rightly so, because it hasn't been done very well for a long time. Societally, in church, in our homes, in our marriages, we are all products here of abusive, arrogant, selfish, gain-seeking, uh, in many cases, simultaneously passive and kind of, you know, wimpy men who don't lay our lives down for our bride or for those who have been entrusted to us. 
but who are looking for looking out for number one and who are looking to, you know, how is this going to be the best thing for me? And so we hear these things and we think, oh, well, the top of the ladder has always got to be man. How chauvinistic, how, how mean, how cruel, how archaic. And, and, and what we need to do, as we always do, is we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to creation. And God designed man and woman. And he said there are differences. And I want those differences to reflect me and my character. For there to be a complementary relationship and role that, 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 that always exists for God's glory and the good of others. And through that, for our joy. So men, if we're called to lead in any way, in your home, in society, in your relationships, and definitely in the church, it had better be the way that Jesus leads, by laying ourselves down for the good of others. The way up is the way down. Hey, there is always a counterintuitive reality in the gospel of Jesus that means that a strong man is the man who takes it on the chin and who says, hey, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to humbly and lovingly lay down my rights for the good of others. Or a prayer that God has really laid on our hearts here as leaders within Redemption Church and within Redemption Tucson specifically is that we would have tender hearts and strong spines. Okay, then, then our first posture would always be, as James um, 1.19 says, that we would be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So as we talk about these things, um, it's always got to be for your good. And, and um, I'm just going to read you one quote. There's a woman that has been incredibly helpful for me to read. Um, in fact, let me just say even before, well, it's already up here. So let me read the quote, then we'll get into here. This is Kathy Keller. She's incredibly smart and helpful, and she is a leader in many ways. She's leading us right now by reading this quote. Okay, I want to get that out there, that, that this doesn't mean women can never lead. Okay, um, let me just read the quote here, and then uh, explain a little more. So Kathy Keller, incredibly smart, seminary graduate woman, um, wrote this. She says, if trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust? With the bark of the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips. And if God can be trusted, then generals, with all of God's gifts to human beings, are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. And let me give a context for this. Kathy Keller wife of Tim Keller, who in this context would say Tim Keller, husband of Kathy Keller, um, who I think, even though he's written way more than her, her book on this subject, her little short book, is probably one of the most helpful books to the church. It's called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And I commend it to you. I encourage you. It's really, it's like $2 on Kindle, like $7 and if you don't want to buy it, but you want to read it, come talk to me and we'll buy it for you. Okay, this is a very helpful book. And she wrote it because she wanted to process through her own journey, having gone to seminary and being really smart and a gifted leader and, and wanting to be ordained as an elder or pastor in ministry. And she went to one of the top seminaries in the world and she was in the process of becoming ordained. And, and as she processed through these things, not just emotionally, right? I don't like sometimes we just read books from women. It's like, oh, it's, well, it's an emotional help, you know. But let's read the real meat. No, she gets her hands dirty. She gets into the Greek and the 
way more stuff than I than I can ever get into. And that's why it's so helpful when she writes and says, as I process through what God says, and it ultimately came down to what we just read, do I trust God? Again, what's the theme of all of Titus? The God who never lies. The trustworthy God who's calling his people to live rightly as they ought to live under his trustworthy leadership. So this issue that we get into, the issue of eldership at large, and specifically the issue of men being called to lead and, and as elders and overseers in the church, for her, and I would submit to you for all of us, is an issue of trust. Ultimately trusting God. And she says, as we always have to say, look no further than the cross of Jesus. The picture of ultimate leadership. He took thorns in his brow. And I can't even say it as eloquently as her, definitely. She said the bark from the, the tree, the thorns on his brow. When you ask the question, can I trust this tense subject? Well, yeah, he's proven his trustworthiness. And then again, all the more, because we can't just assume it, we come back to, well, men, are you qualified? Do you have the qualities of Jesus in your leadership as elders or overseers, which is the same word? Yet it always comes back to, well, are you arrogant? Are you puffed up? Are you looking out for number one? Are you trying to climb up by pushing others down and climbing up? Well, no, or do you lay your life down for the good of others, as Jesus has done? And then he goes on and he talks about children. And his children are believers. And my guess is this hits home for a lot of us too. And um, we're getting close to being at the end of our time here. So good luck with that. We'll get back to it. No. Can I have your permission to get into this a little more? I think we're hitting on some tense subjects this morning. And um, and so let's, let's just spend a little more time on this. Okay? Because some of you might be thinking like, well, man, my, you know, I, I want to be an elder one day, but I don't know, my kid is only two, it's crazy. Like, they not only, they might not be, you know, a Christian, they might not be, they might be demonic. Like, they're crazy, you know, and I don't know, am I disqualified from eldership? Or, more rightly, probably some in here have, you know, kids that are in their teen years, or even, like, in their 30s. And you're like, I don't know where they're at. I don't know if, you know, they're, they're Christians. Well, we're not asking you to do what only God can do. As we sang up here, like, as I prayed earlier, right? only God, we believe the doctrine that says that only God can, can, can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Okay, so we're not asking you to work miracles and to do what you can do and to guarantee that your children will become Christians will become born again or regenerate or have softened hearts. Well, what this means is actually the word is more likely not just believers, but is, is obedience. With the idea that it says not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It means that you've structured your home in such a way that you have led the small church, as the Puritans said, that you've led the small church that God has entrusted to you, that you have discipled well before you can disciple well and lead the big church. That your home life is reflective of how you will lead everywhere else. Okay, so let me encourage you that this doesn't mean you're perfect or your kids are perfect, but it means that your leadership is directly connected to how you will lead in every other way. That your home, that you've done as best as you can 
that you've laid your life down, that you've pointed your family toward Jesus, and you've entrusted it to him to do what only he can do. Okay, so again, that should be incredibly encouraging and incredibly convicting to some of us. That our lives in every facet have to reflect who we are and how we lead. And I'm going to really pick up the pace here as we now kind of come to an end and just walk through that list that we read. Verse 7. As God's steward. Okay, it's not your own. This isn't a position to get in and just sit back in the proverbial love lazy boy and be like, I've arrived. Okay, but no, you're God's steward. You're, you're an underling. Okay, right? If you ever think of this as like, I want to be a pastor one day so I, can, so I can tell everyone else what to do, so I can be the man, so I can get all the props. Okay, that's like, your, your title is an underling. Okay, how, like, how, how powerful does that sound? All right, you, you, are, you are a hired, you are an, an underservant of the leader of his church, Jesus. And this is the way your life is to look. You're not arrogant. You're not quick-tempered. You're not a drunkard. You're not violent or greedy for gain. You're hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. As arrogance is runs rampant in our world today, in our church today, and a lot of times, again, we approach eldership or any kind of leadership. All right, young men, look at me right now. Um, or anyone that might be married to someone who's now a young man or who's going to raise a young man. Like, arrogance is not, can't just be like, oh, they're a strong leader. They're arrogant. So they're, okay, let's ignore that. Let's ignore that, yeah, they don't lay their lives down for others. They push others, but man, they get things done. Okay, so they're going to they're gonna lead. No, that is a disqualification. That is a, that is a quality of salt on who you're called to be if you aspire to be an overseer or an elder, which is a good thing. If you're arrogant, if you're always looking out for yourself, as it says down there, greedy for selfish gain in this context, that was a very practical thing, all right? Then, then, then people would literally go and preach and wow the crowds with their, you know, with their silver tongues, and they would pass the hat and would just roll, rake in the money. And that was literally happening. And so he was to say, no, no, no. If you're in it for financial gain, if you're in it for the props that you're going to get, if you're in it, if you're looking for, you know, looking for attaboys and, you know, swat, you know, good games, whatever, my, like, you're in the wrong business. Yes, I did do that. I shouldn't have that on the back. No good games in here. But if you're, if you're looking for, if you're looking for selfish gain, then that's likely directly connected to arrogance and you're disqualified. That's not a quality. As we seek to raise up men here who are called and who are sent in every different capacity as leaders, um, that, that's, we're not going to just say, well, man, they get things done. No, because that, that's not Jesus. The way up is the way down for Jesus. He's proven his trustworthiness through that. Drunkenness, that doesn't mean you can't ever drink, that we're not saying that at all. That means that your life is not lived by your, you're enslaved to something else. You're enslaved to wine, and, you know, video games, whatever it is, okay? Like, you're, you give your life to it and it enslaves you. And that's what's going on here with drunkenness. Self-control. And I'll just be real with you guys, okay? Um, I joke about, you know, like, when I saw that guy today, even one of the other pastors here in Redemption is here today, and they joke with me, they have this phrase, I'm not going to flesh it out with you, but it's called drink Goffman and it's essentially, my last name is 
cacophony. And it's um, essentially like having way more confidence than you seemingly should is basically what it comes down to. And, um, but really a lot of that comes down to um, this being quick tempered and being violent. Um, I'll be honest, the most likely, if you want to pray for me, the most likely way I can be disqualified as your pastor is um, that I, you know, in the grocery store or on the soccer field or the baseball diamond or on the road, like all of a sudden, you know, I get into an altercation and I get into a fight and next thing you know, like I've given in to being quick-tempered. And this is a real story. Like I literally pray for that and ask others to pray for me that and ask God to break my heart and to give me, yes, a strong spine, but to overwhelm that with a soft heart that dies to self and it doesn't have something to prove. It doesn't have a chip on its shoulder or a Napoleon complex. You know, and it, um, this, this is real talk here. And that we live in such a way that we're not perfect, but that we understand that we serve a perfect leader, a trustworthy leader, who has commissioned the church to thrive under his leadership, and then has called qualified men who aren't perfect, but who spend their lives on their knees, calling out, Lord, help us. Do what we cannot do on our own by leading your people to be the healthy people of God under the trustworthy leadership of Jesus as the leaders that he has called to lay down their lives for the good of his people. That sounds good. Amen? Let's, uh, let's pray in response to Jesus, our head pastor, and thank him for the gift he's given us, the church to help lead us to thrive in our homes, in our families,